Good morning. Good morning. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Powerful verse from the Old Testament. Micah 6, verse 8 says, And what does the Lord require of you? Good question. Three things. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, last week I talked a lot about the, the middle of those three requirements from the Lord to, to love mercy. In fact, I tried to help us all understand that if we want to be like David, who was called a man after God's own heart, if we want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, hopefully we all do, then we need to love mercy. We need to be full of compassion and kindness and gentleness and love for others around us. And yet, in that uh, little verse we're looking at on the screen there, God also tells us to act justly and to walk humbly with our God. And I want to do my best to do both of those, to, to focus on justice and what is right, but also do so with a lot of humility today as we talk about a very touchy and controversial topic today. It's a topic that is in our face just about everywhere we go. I mean, you can't turn on the television to watch the news or even a sitcom um, without this being in your face. You know, it's all over social media. Uh, it's in most political debates or discussions. It's a huge top topic in our school system with our young, impressionable children. It's talked about constantly, just about everywhere you go, except not often in church. Actually, I preached about it a few years ago, and I know a lot of other pastors do periodically, but it is kind of uncomfortable because it is controversial, and so therefore it is often kind of avoided, um, at least in churches or public settings where someone might be offended or upset. Um, and while the last thing I want to do is sound judgmental or fail to be compassionate or merciful or grace-giving, again, that's what we focused on last week, and I hope if you are here uh, you understood how incredibly powerful and important that is to God, should be to all of us to be in that boat. But at the same time, we also need to know what God says about every topic, about everything that matters in our world today that is a big deal to Him and is a big deal, therefore, to us as well. And so this also, by the way, I'll tell you, this is a topic that I've been thinking about for a while because I've had a lot of people ask me, Scott, what is what does the church say? What, what, what should we say? Where should we land? What does the Bible say about this topic? So let me do my best to share with you what God thinks, not so much what I think. What you and I think, you know, is fine. We all have opinions, and we, we're entitled to opinions, but ultimately our opinions need to flow downstream from God's opinion, which is what He shares very clearly in His Holy Word with us. And so with him being the same yesterday, today, and forever, that's Hebrews 13. With him being that, we need to understand that his word never changes. His word never gets outdated, never needs updating. None of that is true. We need to make sure we are constantly updating ourselves and our agendas and our thoughts and our plans by what he says. And so the question that we're talking about, the topic we're talking about, really is the overall overarching concept of sex, which is not talked a lot about in church, and specifically today about what God has to say or what he thinks about a part of that context, which is homosexuality. What does that look like according to God's word? Homosexuality, as you know, is one of the hottest and most controversial topics in our country today, really across the world. 
Many people, especially Christians, seem to kind of want to be like the proverbial ostrich, you know, go find some sand, stick our head down in it, and just pretend like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Because, for one, we don't want to offend or upset other people. We want to be kind and sensitive, um, you know, and all of that is good. I'm in the same boat. I don't want to offend anybody. That's not the point at all. But we do need to stand for what God says, and we do need to understand what He says, and then stand for that. You know, I strongly believe everything I preached last week. If you weren't here, um, I, you, you can get online. You can listen to that if you'd like. But um, as we talked about um, mercy and kindness and compassion, we need to understand that God's Word is so clear that if we want to be a man or a woman after His heart like David was, we need to be quick to be in that boat, quick to show mercy and kindness to others. In fact, the most powerful force on the planet is God's love. Jesus taught us, in fact, that when people outside the world look at us, they should be able to recognize us as Christians, not so much because of what we are against, but because of what we are for. He taught that we should be recognized, in fact, by our love. Those were his words, that we should be recognized by our love. And that's so important. That's the most powerful force on the planet, God's love. But whether it's popular or not, we also need to stand up and speak up for what God says about every issue, everything in Scripture. If it's important to Him, it should be important to us. And every topic that uh, comes up in our world that is discussed needs to be looked at not based on just what politics say or others around us say or what our heart or gut or personal thoughts are about, but what does God say? It is infinitely more important. I hope everybody agrees with this. Infinitely more important to be biblically correct than politically correct. I hope we all understand that. But before you assume you know where this sermon is headed, and therefore start to make judgments about what you think, or, don't, or whether you agree or disagree or whatever, I mean, because I know there are probably a whole lot of different perspectives and opinions and thoughts and experiences from different people and personal connections and ideas. Before you assume too much, can you do this? Would you be willing to bow your head with me and pray? and ask God to help us care about His opinion more than our own. Lord, that is our simple prayer, that You would help us to set aside any thoughts or emotions or personal agendas or ideas, and just simply be open-minded to what You would want us to hear. Help us to look at Your Word and land on what You think. So to that end, Father, I hope I'm praying on behalf of all of us when we say, Please, Lord, speak to us through your word and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive whatever you would want for us in the context of, of uh, sexual things in general and specifically about this homosexual topic. And we pray in Jesus' name and everybody together said, Amen. Amen. So first, even from the mouths of babes, isn't that awesome? So first of all, before we look at what God thinks about homosexuality, let's look at the greater context. I think it's really important to do this and understand what God thinks about marriage. Because all sex, as you will see in Scripture, comes, is, is to happen within that context of marriage. So let's look at what He says about marriage. Follow the in institution of the family upriver to its headwaters, and you will hear God's voice in the very beginning of the book, the big book made up of 66 books, called the Bible. In verse... Uh, 18 of chapter 2 in that first book of the Bible called Genesis, God says it is not good for the first time. He has said multiple times it is good, this is good, that is good about all that He had created. And finally, for the first time, He says something is not good. And what is it? 
it's not good that the man be alone. So he said, I will make a helper suitable for him. You see, God created marriage. No government subcommittee envisioned it. No social organization developed it. Marriage was conceived and born in the mind of God. And his phrase, I will make, those three words suggest a plan. And as he continues, I will make a helper suitable for him. That sentence envisions a special partnership, a really amazing partnership. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that Craig Walker did an amazing job talking through this passage, this concept of marriage, what husbands and wives need to understand about one another and about marriage within uh, the passage that we're looking at here. Uh, marriage is actually, as he talked about, a divine connection. What one person lacks, the other is able to supply. And this has been God's plan from the beginning of time. Marriage is a beautiful and holy gift from God. And in Genesis 2, God gives Adam a task. As you see in verse 20, the Bible says, the man gave names to all the tame animals. But skipping ahead a little bit, but Adam did not find a helper that was right for him. So the point of the, I don't know, I guess you call it an animal parade that God did for Adam, the point of that was that no animal could, could fill the need that Adam had. This being alone needed to be addressed, but it was with an animal. So God created Eve. From the frame of man, God created woman. She was of equal value, born of the same father, but very different. And in a wonderful way, in a very attractive way to Adam. Did you know that when Adam first saw Eve, the Bible records his first thought, his first word? It's really, actually, if you do a word study, it's super rich and interesting. Um, uh, if you look it up in the Hebrew, the first word has so much power and depth to it. The word was simply, wow. <laughs> in some translations, it was, whoa. But whatever, either way. Now, seriously, it was, I mean, listen to his action or his uh, response. Actually, according to the New Living Tra Translation, which Craig used a couple of weeks ago, here's what Adam said. At last... At last, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. I mean, can't you just hear the excitement and the anticipation and the gratitude to God for what God had all of a sudden allowed him to feast his eyes on and see? Now, to make sure we didn't miss the immensity of the moment, Moses follows the first spoken words of woman with the first commentary about woman in the very next verse, verse 24. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, or one body. This is the first instance or inference to sex. That's what Scripture is talking about here. That's where sex was originated. That's when sex was explained or first talked about. Sex was always to be, as clearly shown here in the precedent being set, something between a man and a woman, one man, one woman for life. That is God's definition of sex, of marriage. Notice the progression. First, there was a leaving. Man and woman wave goodbye to mom and dad, and they unite, or they cleave, was the word in Scripture. Now, it's no casual date. It's not a short-term affair. Um, marriage was a lifelong commitment. Now, I want you to pause and think about something as we're looking at that piece to what we're looking at here in Scripture. Think about it. God could have given Adam another man, right? He could have, but he did not. 
He could have given Adam two or three women, but he didn't do that either. Um, he could have given Eve to Adam for just one night and said, now you can move on. He didn't do that either. God did what he did that day with purpose to set a precedent to help us understand as he then continued to talk about in Scripture throughout the Bible that his holy definition of marriage is pretty simple. It is simply this, almost like a math equation, one man plus one woman for life. That's his definition of marriage. And it is within that definition of marriage that all sex should happen, that anything sexual should happen. Now, that may not be a popular place to land today. Obviously, again, it's not politically correct, but it is biblically correct. There is no denying Scripture on that point. Others may not like it, may not think that's progressive enough or, you know, or, or liberal enough in thought, but that is what God says in His Holy Word. But you know what? The ever-increasing opposition to His plan that we see throughout our culture, throughout our world, it's not a new thing. A lot of people think it's kind of a new thing, you know, that some people would even say that, you know, the popular, less conservative approach to love and marriage and the openness and all these ideas that are coming, you know, that this is kind of new and progressive and, and it's for those who are most open-minded and most, you know, forward-thinking and things along that line, as if this redefinition of marriage is some brand new man-made thing. But it is man-made, but it is not new at all. It's totally false. In fact, by the time God's Word was actually presented to the rest of humanity after initially coming to the Jewish people in Israel, by the time God's Word and His plan was presented to everybody else, all kinds of other religions had already done all kinds of other things, invented everything we've invented or thought we invented or, or started practicing or seeing promoted throughout our world today. All of that is is ancient. None of it is new. Egypt, Mesopotamia, Phoenicia, Cyrus, Canaan, religious life in each of these nations have been marked by temple prostitution, ritual sex, all kinds of deviations from God's plan. None of what we see in our world today is progressive in the sense that it's new or in the sense that it is, um, you know, something that has been, that people have been liberated and, and open-minded to and just thought up recently. This really shouldn't come to our surprise in any way since early religions all saw their gods as sexual beings, virtually all religions anyway. Let me just give you a couple examples. The Babylonian god Ishtar was said to have seduced a man. The Egyptian god Osiris had sex with his sister. Krishna, the Hindu god, was a polygamist, had many, many wives. According to the Greeks, Zeus married Hera. And the examples of other gods being sexual beings and promoting sex outside of God's definition of it, so, I mean, just go on and on and on. And so considering that, it should be no surprise to us that homosexuality was widely practiced thousands and thousands of years ago. It is not something new over the last few decades or century or whatever, as some might want us to think. Again, according to Scripture, though, sex is not some kind of recreational sport, or just an opportunity to freelance and do whatever feels right or natural to you. That is not the way we should look at sex. Sex is a matrimonial privilege in the context of God's definition of marriage, which again is one man plus one woman for life. That is His definition. 
And anything outside of that goes against his plan. Against his plan, which, by the way, is so important for us to understand. We'll talk about this more in a minute. His plan is there for our good. It is not to hold out on us or to squelch anything, but to help us. So anyway, that leads to the second and key question today. What does God say about homosexuality? What does he say? What does his word say? You know, to begin to address that, I, I'll say this. You know, if, if our governor, uh, you know, Colorado Governor Jared Polis, who is openly gay, if he were here today, or maybe Ellen DeGeneres, Elton John, I don't know, name some other famous uh, homosexual or, or gay person, if they were sitting here and able to have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, sitting here on the stage, kind of a one-on-one interview or just discussion that we got to be part of, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be incredible to listen and just hear what Jesus said, how he would word things, what he would say, what he wouldn't say? What, you know, I, I would love that. Unfortunately, the Bible gives us no um, such conversation to read or look at. So we can't know exactly, but we can know this without doubt. Jesus would love them. He would love them from the bottom of his heart just as much as he loves you and me or anybody else. The, you know, he, he, he would tell them about his love, about his plan for them. He would listen to them. He would ask good questions. He wouldn't just preach at them. He would listen and dialogue. You know, maybe like he did with Zacchaeus. Do you remember that story? Maybe like he did with Zacchaeus, he might go to their home, pretty much invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. He said, let's have dinner today. I want to sit and talk and get to know you. Maybe he would do that. Maybe he would treat that person on stage like he did the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember that encounter when he spent an afternoon sitting in the shade talking and getting to know, again, developing relationship, not talking at, but talking with somebody. Maybe like he did with Matthew, Jesus might offer a personal invitation. I mean, the exact words, we don't know what he would say, but of their sentiment, we should not have to wonder. He would tell them about his love for them. He would tell them, as Scripture talks about in Romans 8, that nothing, somebody say the word nothing, nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. Nothing. And that includes homosexuality. Jesus loves all his children including his gay children. He knit them together in his mother's womb just as much as he knit you or I or anybody else together in our mother's womb. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for gay people just as much as he did straight people. For all of us in that way. And he would tell the gay person that we're sitting here if he were on stage with them as much. He would make this clear to them. He would start there. But again, while he would speak to them with compassion and mercy, which again was last week's focus, which I've so, you know, focused on and want to be known for, while that is what Jesus would do as well, he would also speak to them with conviction and tell them the truth, not because he wants to point a bony finger at them or bring a hammer or or hit them over the head with a Bible, none of that. It would be because of love and compassion, because he knows and he desires what is best for all of us. And so he would tell them the truth. So I want to look at God's word, God's opinion, not my opinion, not your opinion or 
the opinions of any activists on either side or any of that, but just what does God say? And the truth is, according to the Bible, God never approves of any sexual union outside of marriage between one man and one woman for life. That is his definition of marriage, and that is the context within which all sex should take place. Anything outside of that is against his plan. Living a gay lifestyle is not God's plan, but, it's an important word, but neither is any other sexual relationship outside of his definition of marriage. In other words, the two single, maybe even monogamous-minded young people who are committed to one another, we're going to be together forever, never want to be with anybody else, but, but I don't want to wait till marriage, let's sleep together now. Heterosexual sex, but before marriage, God disapproves of that just as much as he does the, the gay sex. And we need to understand that. Or how about, how about the married person who decides to be sexually active with someone other than their spouse? That's called adultery. And that's called sin. And that is outside of God's plan as well. And the list can go on and on. The adult who seduces children, of course. The sibling with a sibling. The men or women with pornography. Um, you know, God clearly disapproves of any of these other variations or deviations from His plan. Any sex outside of His plan, which again is one man, one woman for life, any, anything outside of that plan is wrong. So, when a woman is with another woman or a man is with another man, again, God disapproves because it goes against His written will for our lives, which is based again on something so huge that so many people miss. And that is that all of God's instructions are for our good. They're not to withhold anything or to squelch anything. They are to help us enjoy, as Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, life to the full or life more abundantly. Sex is a wonderful gift. It is to be enjoyed. It is fun, not by accident. That was not an accident. God designed it that way. It's supposed to be wonderful and enjoyable and all the above. He could have made it if he wanted to. Think about it. Procreation could have happened by some pretty routine, boring, you know, way. God could have done that if he wanted. Sex is enjoyable on purpose. It's supposed to be that way. It is, it is that way by design. But it is still only to be between one man and one woman within the context of a till death do us part marriage because God knows and again, He desires what is best for us. He's not holding out. It's because He knows that paths other than His own path that He lays out for us lead nowhere good. Might be enjoyable on the short term, uh, you know, for, for the short term, heading down some other path. But long term, every path outside of His plan leads to heartache and struggle and pain. The Bible clearly states God's feelings about sex outside of marriage, and in reference to homosexual activity in particular, which again is just one of many possible deviations from his plan, he says this. Let me just show you some. We don't have time to go into all. There's so much in Scripture about it. People today oftentimes will misquote or, or hear inappropriately from somebody and assume things that are incorrect, like, well, the Bible doesn't really condemn homosexuality. The Bible doesn't actually, or actually the Bible says it's okay, or kind of seems to say, show me that in the Bible. It's not there. Let me show you just some of what the Bible says about it. You can look it up and read more if you want. But let me show you this. He says this to the men of Israel 
In Leviticus 18, he said, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Big word. This is God's holy word I'm quoting, not because I look down on gay people, not because I hate gay people, not at all. I love gay people like I love everybody else. I have friends. I have others that I kind of are friends with, people that I know and have enjoyed trying to talk with that are in the middle of this situation, and I don't have anything against them any more than I do anybody else who struggles with whatever you might name. I want to talk about this because God's holy word talks about it and because it's a big deal in our society today. And because I recognize that God's holy word is a book of love written for you and me and for our good. You know, it's kind of like the small child who needs to be taught the dangers of playing with matches or the dangers of playing with a sharp knife, running around with a stick in their hand or playing too close to the edge of the street. Things are dangerous, right? And in the same way, we need to understand God's plan for sex because anything outside of His plan is dangerous. And it leads to, to bad places. Over I have, as older, seen this play out in real life. You know, I'm, I'm 52 years old, and as I have counseled and talked with, I can't, I can't even begin to count how many couples and individuals over my lifetime, um, I have seen over and over and over again, those who stick with God's plan, trust His plan, and follow His plan, over and over and over, they are the ones who enjoy sex the most. They have the most fulfilling, happy uh, part of that part of their life. They have the biggest smiles on their faces. They enjoy these things the most. The people who deviate from God's plan may smile in the moment. They may enjoy things in the moment. But I have had so many conversations with people who have gone outside of God's plan, not necessarily just homosexual paths, but in other ways as well, outside of His plan. And over and over and over, I have heard stories of heartbreak and loneliness and depression. I mean, suicide rates are exploding in the context of people that go outside of God's plan in these ways. Well, continuing with his word, again, this is just a few of the scriptures that talk about the topic. I want you to see very clearly God's word. Put them in your bulletin for you to take home and look at if you want. Look at what God says in the days of Moses. This is Leviticus chapter 20. If a man has sexual relations with another man as a man does with a woman, these two have done a hateful sin. Some would say, well, this is really just an Old Testament thing. After Jesus came, you know, we're under the new covenant, so therefore the Old Testament doesn't apply, and, and all of God's Word that talked about homosexuality is Old Testament. That's not true. Let me show you. It's a New Testament thing as well. To the Romans, God spoke with identical firmness. He said this, women stopped having natural sex and started having sex with other women. In the same way, men stopped having natural sex and began wanting each other. Men did shameful things with each and in their bodies they received the punishment for those wrongs. Romans chapter 1. Or how about to the people in Corinth? To the Corinthians, he wrote this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Those who indulge in sexual sin, it's a broad title or wording, those who indulge in sexual sin, who are idol worshipers, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusers, and swindlers, none of these will have a share in the kingdom of God. From start to finish, Genesis all the way to Revelation and everywhere in between, God's Word consistently condemns same-sex intimacy. 
It is not appropriate. But pause. Hang on. Pause for just a minute and look at that verse with me. Look closely at that verse. Homosexuality, as you can see, is clearly listed as a sin. But so are a number of other issues that we often as Christians want to think of as lesser sins, like they are not as big of a deal to God, things that maybe we struggle with that we want to defocus on, deprioritize. Look at that list and understand this. If you have a problem with greed, anybody in here ever struggle with greed? If you have a problem with greed or drunkenness or anything else listed there, that verse is as much for you as it is the gay person. Don't lose sight of that. Finally, one final question, maybe the most important part. What does God say about the Christian response? What do we do with this? It's one thing to understand what He says, but how do we respond to it? You know, Jesus and taught over and over that we should be strong in our faith and willing to boldly stand for truth. But we also see Him modeling and teaching that we should do so in love. It's a complicated or kind of sometimes difficult to figure out balance. And as, as I've said before, I think we all need to understand that we have the potential to be walking oxymorons in the sense that we can be right and wrong at the exact same time. You can be right in the sense that you're quoting Scripture. How can that be wrong? Of course it's not wrong. You can say Scripture, but if you have a poor attitude as you do so, you can be wrong at the same time. Right and wrong at the same time. Yes, homosexuality angers, that activity angers God. But think about this. Who among us has not angered God? Homosexuality was not, think about this, was not what caused Jesus to cleanse the temple with whips, to turn over the tables and run people out. It was not about homosexuality that day. What caused him to be so angry that he did that? It was self-righteousness and greed, two of what we might again sometimes refer to unwisely as lesser sins as if they're not as big of a deal. Sins that plague many of us. So, therefore, there should never be any gay bashing among God's people. There should never be any gay jokes or arrogant parading of signs. None of the above. In fact, if that's you, you need to know that you are sinning and that your sin offends God just as much as those that you are mocking. I mean, is it okay to shun the alcoholic? Is it okay to ridicule the gossip or the person who struggles with overeating? Of course not. We need to show the same grace and love to those who struggle in one way as we do those that struggle in another way. That's why we have the sign out front. Did everybody see it? I put it outside so you couldn't miss it. No perfect people allowed. And trust me, think about it, none of us can look at that sign as we're walking in and go, whoops, I guess I'm not welcome today. Nobody can feel that way or think that way. All of us are completely allowed in the building when we read that sign. Because God saved you by His grace. This is Ephesians 2. He saved you by His grace when you believe. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. So, how do we respond as Christians? How do we respond? Let me just take the few minutes I have left and share with you real quickly. In fact, if you have your bulletin, you might want to write these down. They're on the back side of the bulletin. Six responses that maybe you can think through. They're all based, as you'll see, on Scripture. Six ways that we should respond as Christians. 
First of all, number one, if it's a big deal to God, it should be a big deal to us. Don't be the proverbial ostrich and bury your head in the sand and say, well, I'll let other people deal with that because decisions will be made. Things in our country will be decided. And we need to recognize that things like this are a big deal if they're a big deal to God. Isaiah chapter 5, the Bible says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Have you ever thought yourself wise? It's a dangerous place to be. Be careful with thinking too highly of your own thought. God said that also to Paul in Romans 12. We need to be careful to not think too highly of our own thought. But Scripture is clear about the consequences of sin, all sin. And it breaks my heart to see people on the, ro- the wrong path, the, the path that leads in this way that, that, that so many are trying to embrace and talk about and promote because it leads somewhere terrible. In fact, that's point number two. Remember what is on the line. Remember What's on the line? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. There are other scriptures that are similar to this, but this says it all. For we must all, somebody say the word all, all, all of us, nobody's left out, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. All of us are going to stand before our Lord and Savior someday, whether we believe in Him or not. Whether we follow him or not, every single one of us will. And you know what? Satan wants lost people to ignore their morality, right? Of course he does. We know that. He wants us to. But he's actually, I think, okay with us coming to understand truth as long as we do so at the right time from his perspective. Let me share with you what I mean by that. I shared last week a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis. I've been reading more of him lately. Boy, late, great C.S. Lewis. Fantastic. So... um, thought-inspiring, and anyway, fantastic. But let me share with you a quote I read from him recently. He said, For the devil, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In other words, I think the devil is actually with those who reject their need for Jesus, realizing that they're wrong. He's okay with that, as long as it's not until we stand at the judgment seat and there's no turning back. As when we stand before Jesus and it's too late, Satan's fine with you knowing the truth then. We need to understand what is on the line. And we're talking about eternity. Not just for you and me, but for all those others around us, neighbors, friends, people we don't know, strangers, everybody around us. Eternity. Every one of us are eternal. Going to live forever, either with him or without him. We need to think about what's on the line, and that should lead us to therefore want to speak up, stand up, get involved, and yet do so, number three, speak the truth in love. In love. That is based on, that, that uh, phrase is based on a scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. I wish I had time to read the whole passage, but let me just read you the one key verse. Verse 15, you can read the context later. Instead, we should, or we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Speaking the truth in love means to be like Jesus. And it's it's a two-sided coin there. Speak the truth, but do it in love. That's like, that's being Jesus. 
As I said earlier, I, I think we as Christians need to be known more for what we are for than what we are against because love is always more powerful than hate. I'll tell you this, uh, I have never yet one time in my entire life, 52 years old, done ministry for almost 30 years, I've never met a single person who surrendered their life to the Lord, who felt convicted of mistakes and a need for the Savior and humbled themselves, repented of sin and asked Jesus to be the Lord of their life. I've never seen that happen because they lost an argument with a Christian. Maybe it's happened, but I've never seen it. We don't win people for Jesus. We don't save them or help them become Christians by arguing with them or shouting at them or pointing a finger at them. We do so like Jesus did, as we saw earlier, by developing relationship, by sitting and talking. Speak the truth, but do so in love. Otherwise, as Scripture says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, that passage that's used in, in weddings all the time should be applied in this kind of context as, w- as well. Because if you don't speak the truth in love, you are like nothing other than just a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong, just a noisemaker that's doing no good. So, whether it be to fill out a voting ballot or standing up at a PTO meeting or going to a political rally or talking to a friend who is gay, or maybe a friend whose daughter or son or somebody else is gay in their life, don't ever, ever be ashamed to speak up for truth. Jesus said if we're ashamed of His truth, He'll be ashamed of us. We need to stand up for Him. Stand up for truth, but do so as His Word talks about with gentleness and respect, which again is straight from Scripture. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 15. The Bible says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, say it with me, do this with me, but do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. What does that look like? Think about it. Maybe you pray about it. Say, God, help me to know. What does gentleness and respect look like? All right, number four. Remember the, the name of your real enemy. Your real enemy has a name. Don't hate gay people. Hate the gay activist. They are not your enemy. Now, we are in a battle. It's a very real and intense and sophisticated battle. Homosexual activists are trampling biblical truth with clever tricks. Scripture told us that this kind of thing would happen. We should not be surprised. Um, But they are not the enemy. We do have an enemy. We are in a fight. And it is against a very organized and intelligent enemy, but it is not a human being. Look at what Ephesians chapter 6 says. For we are not, not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Never forget our battle is not against human beings. They are never our enemy. Number five, remember we stand tallest when we are on our knees. Yes, we need to stand up, stand up tall for what we believe, but sometimes we need to stand by getting on our knees and looking up. Say, no, dear God, help me to be fully devoted to you, to be humble, to be as Christ-like as I can, to be bold, but to do so in love. To always be prepared to have an answer, but to do so with gentleness and respect. We need to be praying for those we personally know that are in the middle of this situation. We need to pray for our country for its leaders, whether it be our governor, whether it be our president, whether it be Supreme Court justices, whether it be other decision makers, we need to be praying for them, whether we voted for them or not, whether we agree with them or not. We need to be praying for them. 
And sometimes, as I already said, we need to be involved in other capacities as well. But we need to start by praying. Don't forget 2 Chronicles 7, 14 that says, If my people, big if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Does anybody want our country to be healed, to, be, to return to its roots, to be God-honoring? Of course. Oh, I do too. It breaks my heart to see the, the situation that our country's in in various capacities. Well, you look at God's Word and it says, if we will humble ourselves and pray, these are the key steps we need to be involved in. Then as people turn from their wicked ways, He will hear and He will heal. Here's one last thing we need to never forget when it comes to how we respond to this big issue in our culture today. And that is to remember who is really in control. Never forget who really is in control. You know, during our lifetime, we will all see many presidents come and go. Many. We'll see a variety of Supreme Court justices and other important leaders come and go. And, and we need to owe, show respect to all the above because of the roles that they are in. But while we have a variety of presidents, we only have one king. And his name is Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Philippians that at, at the proper time, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ. Whether they want to or not, that's going to happen. You know what the Bible also says in 1 Peter 1? All people are like grass. All, like grass. All, the glory, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is confidence and hope and beauty in that truth. And we need to stand for that, but do so focused on the right person. And he has a name. His name is Jesus. We all may answer in one way or another here and there to the Supreme Court. You know, in a sense we do. But we really only, all real authority only belongs to the supreme authority, the supreme being, and his name is Jesus. And we need to understand that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of our faith, and it is to him that we owe our ultimate allegiance. Amen? To God and to God alone. So I want to ask you if you would to stand with me, and we're going to close by singing an incredible song, an opportunity for all of us to just commit to him and to say the words are simply well I'll just tell you the title that says it all my heart is yours would you just do this for me would you put your hands in the air right now almost like a police officer saying put your hands in the air put your hands up put your hands up and just just say that say this phrase with me my heart is yours my heart is yours, Lord. Lord, as we close our service today, we want to commit to you. And whether we are comfortable putting our hands in the air while we'll sing or not, that's okay. It doesn't matter. But Lord, help us to commit to you with all we've got. And if there are those who need to come and, and repent or maybe just pray for somebody else that they're burdened for, Lord, would you impress upon us the need to come and, and pray and, and focus on who you are. So Lord, as we sing and as we worship, may we honor you. May commit to you and love you in every way. And in Jesus' name.